Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. <laughs> I just learned something. Oh, I'm having fun now. That is a sword fight I am not into, sir. <laughs> you dare to hide in a stall? Come out here amongst the urinals, or I may have at thee. <laughs> you can do this all night, dude. <laughs> hey, Duncan. Yo! So, this topic was not a runaway victory in the Discord. <laughs> no landslides? No, there were two topics that were kind of battling it out. Hmm. And after a couple days, uh, one of them was ahead by, like, very few votes. Hmm. And I was just like, all right, well, I got to call it. At some point, I got to start researching. Right. Wednesdays are coming. <laughs> so I started researching the episode and got a pretty good portion of the way through and then happened to go back into that channel, and they were tied. I was like, nope, no. So then uh, I had to vote. Oh. It wasn't to game the system. It was just uh, self-preservation. Right. Like, no, 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 no. I have done too much research. You're not going to undermine this next episode, Discord. You, you won't defeat me, Discord. With your vacillating ways. <laughs> your waffling. So my point here is that just FYI, going forward, I'm going to lock the voting after 48 hours. I don't think there's a way to actually lock the poll, but what I'll do is just take a screenshot, and that's what we're going with. And if a bunch of people come in later and vote for the other one and they're like, why did you choose this one? I'll just upload that screenshot and be like, yeah, no, you missed the cutoff. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, a couple people have messaged me asking how to get to the Discord. And I just realized, like, we don't talk about that anymore. We just always mention the Discord. But oh. all you have to do is scroll down in the show notes and or go to our Instagram. Either way, there's always a link to the Discord right there. Wherever you're listening right now, scroll down. It's yep. that easy. Always scroll down. So the topic that they did choose very mm. narrowly, or I guess that I chose. That was chosen. <laughs> We're moving towards that was chosen. Is crazy, weird, bizarre fashion trends through the ages. Oh, nice. Do you have any favorite weird-ass fashion trends? I know you mentioned, uh, like, slat shades or whatever, and I, I, yeah. I didn't do those. Venetian, <laughs> like, the Venetian blind shades? Yeah. I went more historical. Oh, okay, yeah. No, the, the 80s Venetian blinds uh, uh, shades were funny. Um, also, shoulder pads in women's jackets during the 80s was and a weird men's. one. Yeah, men's, but I understand men's because there's this sort of, you know, male socialization to, like, broad shoulders and manly shoulders. But to give women, like, rectangular shoulders to me was just like, eh? It looks like a robot. Yeah. I just, <laughs> me, mar, me, mar, I am 80s woman. Mar. It just didn't make a sense to me. But it's, it's okay. I love that I just said it. It doesn't make a sense to me. Somehow I got it the Italian. It's weird. But yeah, so there was that, and then um, the other one was corsets. I thought mm. corsets and and feet binding, like anyone where the women, the woman was bound to the point where her body physically changed permanently, or at least near permanently. Mm. Yeah, like that. That to me is just like right? we may uh, we may have brush up against may, this. <laughs> we may venture into that territory. Okay, but let's start with something yeah, kind of not as extreme, mm. but this will ease us in. Okay. I think because women's fashion in particular through the years has been just absolute lunacy. Oh, yeah. Fashion trendsetters are either sadists or at the very least uber misogynistic. They clearly hate women. Yeah. I just picture like these male fashion designers just sitting around some giant boardroom table like, what are we going to do this year? We made them balance on tiny stilts, tear out their body hair with hot wax. Kind of running out of shit to do. Can we tear out their finger and toenails? No, we need those to paint. Right. How do we top this? Next year's fashion trend, just set your vagina on fire. <laughs> Volvo flambe is so hot right now. 
So all of the trends that we're going to discuss were at the very least silly and impractical, but a select few were downright murderous. Hmm. And the hobble skirt is one. Huh. The hobble skirt took the fashion world by storm between 1908 and 1914, and it accomplished exactly what you might expect based on the name. It was a skirt that was so tight around the knees and calves that it impaired the wearer's ability to walk. Oh, okay? Women were essentially hobbled. They had to shuffle forward with tiny little mincing microsteps. Why? Why was that hot? So there is no clear agreement as to who actually invented the hobble skirt. But the commonly proposed theory is that it was related to the invention of the airplane. Hmm. At Le Mans, France, in 1908, American actress Edith Berg, the wife of aviation enthusiast Hart O. Berg, requested a ride during a flight demonstration by the Wright brothers. In order to secure her dress from pulling a Marilyn and hiking up due to the wind, she tied a rope around her calves and shuffled around like a moron. French designer Paul Poiret, who is often credited with creating the design, apparently witnessed this spectacle, and instead of shaking his head sadly and averting his eyes like a decent human, he instead rubbed his hands together gleefully like a Gallic Mr. Burns and vowed to subject the women of the world to similar humiliation. Is this where we got the pencil skirt? Yes. So the okay. pencil skirt is the natural next step, the evolution of the hobble skirt. It's not as bad. The hobble skirt was extreme. Right. Pencil skirt is still pretty bad. You could give the person a little shove and timber. <laughs> Some of these Fox News hosts that mm. like wear these, I just, yeah, shoulder check. Mind the gap. Yeah. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've fantasized. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So the ridiculousness of the hobble skirt design did not escape popular notice, even at the time. Mm. The trend was mocked relentlessly in comic strips and cartoons, and shuffling hobble skirt races became a popular and humorous diversion. I like it. Okay. At least somebody had a sense of humor about it. But it wasn't all fun and games. Hobble skirts resulted in numerous deaths, such as 18-year-old Ida Goyette, who in 1911 stumbled off of New York's Erie Canal Bridge and drowned. Ouch. And the hobble skirt hasn't fully disappeared, as you mentioned. The so-called pencil-style skirts have kept it alive. And I'm not going to lie, certain women in pencil skirts look ravishingly hot until they try and move, and then they just look ridiculous. At least they've gotten better at marketing, I guess. Because right. back then, they just weren't hiding the awfulness. Right. It's called a fucking hobble skirt. What I love is what woman is like, yeah, no, totally, hobble me. You got a feed bag? I'm good. Here, try on these guillotine boxer shorts. No. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> Next trend. Oh, yeah. So moving from the dangerous to the simply impractical and potentially embarrassing, hmm. we can't skip the short-lived paper clothing fad of the 1960s. You fucking what one? It's exactly what it sounds like, a disposable, typically single-use paper dress or vest that would immediately dissolve into mush in the event of inclement weather. Uh, this would never last half a day with me. The amount that I sweat, it would just come <laughs> off at the fucking chest. It might be useful. It would be like a uh, wicking function. No, it would become soggy friggin' paper you on my body. You have to carry like seven shirts. Yeah, in my back pocket. I just unfold them like a sheet of paper and just put them on. There was even paper underwear. Which I guess makes a little more sense because underwear is not exposed to the elements. It's not going to get wet in a rainstorm. But it seems like way more uncomfortable than wearing paper as an outer layer. Really? Have you never like had the runs and just tucked a little toilet paper up in there and like hoped for the best? I love that this is how we judge underwear. We're like, how is it going to react when I inevitably soil myself? I mean, <laughs> how do you judge them? <laughs> The paperware craze was officially kicked off in 1966 by the Scott Paper Company, sadly unrelated to Michael Scott, mm. though their strategy seems eerily similar to something he might have devised. 
As a cheap marketing stunt, they advertised paper caper dresses for $1.25 each. When the dresses became a fun, silly fad, department stores capitalized by developing designer versions of paper clothing and charging the modern equivalent of $60 for a one-time-use garment. Really? Like $60 for paper? Designs were often bold, colorful, and influenced by the pop art movement of the era. Andy Warhol's soup cans were a popular design choice. You could even personalize your own paper dress by coloring it with crayons. Oh, Wow. So you, just in case you want to look like you did recently escape from a mental institution, <laughs> color your own clothing. You didn't have to color your own. You could let your kid do it. Oh, yeah. Has your kid ever brought home a crayon drawing from school and you thought to yourself, instead of putting this surreal five-legged dog smudge up on the refrigerator, I really wish I could wrap it around my body and then uh, be seen in public by other adult humans. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, this street pizza that's supposed to look like grandma. I will put this on my chest. Quote, one of the most unusual paper dresses was implanted with seeds. Upon watering the garment, the fabric sprouted tiny blossoms. Oh, my God. Really? They put on chia skirts? What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I would love to have some clothing that is also soil. Yeah. I mean, comes pre-soiled. You don't have to spend money to get a dress that grows stuff. No. Just leave it on your back porch during a rainy season. This is my mushroom dress. <laughs> That's gross. I'll be the portabelle of the ball. Oh, Lord. And we're back to this. <laughs> Portabellishness makes a return two episodes later. I'm going to see how long I can keep this streak of terrible fungus puns going. Is it, this is episode three or four at this it's, point. Yeah, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> portabelle. Stop. Yeah, That's a good one. It's so bad. So the Scott Paper Company hadn't anticipated the massive demand for their product and the trend that it would create, but maybe they should have, because paper clothing appeared at the exact moment that a cascade of forces converged to produce the perfect market conditions for a disposable clothing item. Hmm. The 1960s produced the first plastic generation, a new breed of American unfamiliar with the economic turbulence in the 1930s, accustomed to abundance and less inclined toward their parents' frugality mentality. Well, right. Less rationing. These weren't the Dust Bowl kids of the, you know, 30s and 40s. Yeah. These were pot-smoking hippies. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they were part of the generation that got everything. Yeah. These were the kids who didn't even have, like, STDs. They just all got to bone. Because, like, penicillin had been invented right. and AIDS hadn't been invented and they were in the sweet spot. Right. Fuckers. <laughs> I'm pretty bitter. Some ways a little bitter. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I'll take my... Uh... Greater mental health care and ability to travel on the world in, you know, 30 hours. And they can keep their less STDs in paper clothing. <laughs> this is also the generation that was uh, being carved up left and right in, as hitchhikers. So, yeah. upsides and downsides. Yeah, you know, functioning FBI, I say. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, this is the generation that would eventually make a store like Ikea possible. Similar to the Americans of today, the young professionals of the 1960s cared less about craftsmanship and durability than they did about convenience and trendiness. Mm. Fashions were changing from week to week, and so a dress that was designed to be tossed into the garbage before it went out of style simply made sense. Uh. Quote, one marketing slogan for paper dresses even boasted, won't last forever, who cares? <laughs> Wear it for kicks, then give it the air. Holy crap. <laughs> Brought to you by Blamo, inventing useless shit you'll trash in three days. I don't know what give it the air means. Is that like yeah. throw it away? Probably yeah, toss probably. it yeah. in the air. I don't know. I'm not that old. I don't 
We didn't say give it the air. Damn, Grandpa, I took off my pants. Give it the air sounds like fart on it. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, just air dry. <laughs> if you don't move from my seat, sir. I shall give you the air. I shall be forced to give you the air. You'll catch a mean case of the vapors, if you know what I'm saying. Quote, paper fashion was America's shortcut to style. In December of 1967, the Saturday Evening Post wrote, Internationally, paper has given us a rare chance to pull ahead of the French. We may have lagged behind for years in hot couture, but our new crew of throwaway designers has been able to start from scratch. We're, we're bragging about trash clothing. I don't, I don't know if they really still even understood couture at that point. That is the most American statement ever. Yeah. You've created enduring fashion trends, but we shall counter with literal garbage. <laughs> Interestingly, some department stores also produced paper bridal gowns, which is the one part of the story that I don't have a problem with. Mm. A wedding dress, it's like a huge investment of money and time. All of that expensive fabric, all the work that goes into it, and then you wear it for one day. Yep. A paper wedding dress makes total sense. Make it as elaborate as you want, and then toss it out at the end of the night. Hell, it should have become a tradition at the end of friggin' weddings. As you're sending them off to the car, just douse them both in water so they have to run to the car starkers and get busy on consummating that marriage. Many prominent fashion historians have theorized that the reason the paper clothing craze didn't last very long is that it was fucking stupid. <laughs> Finally, something historians said I understood. I like it. For many reasons, uh, not the least of which being that you were intentionally draping yourself in fabric that was highly combustible. Hmm. There's fabric that isn't, it's true, but asbestos isn't very good for you. Notable downsides of paper clothing, quote, They were generally ill-fitting and uncomfortable. Their garish colors would rub off. They were often flammable and eventually ended as waste. Weird. It's almost like you said paper clothing. <laughs> <laughs> that flammability thing, uh, that would be a big factor for me. Yeah. I love that it was like third on the list of complaints. When might burst into flames is just one of the many downsides to a trend, that is all you need to know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly wearing anything that isn't flammable right now, but it's not like I'm wearing kindling. You know, cotton yeah. you can pat out. To be fair, the original paper dresses were actually created to promote the Scott Paper Company's new blend of paper called DuraWeave, which was 7% rayon. And it's like slightly more durable and fire resistant than normal paper. Mm. But the keyword there is slightly. It's still paper. <laughs> this grenade is slightly less explodey than a normal one. <laughs> we packed it with 30% more cotton balls. You're not necessarily going to die. You might just uh, be maimed for life permanently. Yeah. Could be worse. Could it? <laughs> <laughs> the environmental movement of the 1970s would eventually prove to be the death knell for paper clothing, thankfully took that long the first earth day debuted in 1970 however paper clothing is still with us today in the form of awkward uncomfortable ass revealing hospital gowns mm -hmm. hospital gowns are like assless chaps for sick people <laughs> literal insult to injury next trend yes so much like today in the 16th and 17th centuries male pattern baldness was a common and commonly bemoaned condition made even worse by the proliferation of syphilis a sexually transmitted disease that affected more Europeans than the Black Plague. Wow. Okay. Common symptoms of syphilis include sores and patchy hair loss. So going bald was even more embarrassing back then, considering it potentially indicated that the guy not only had a shiny dome, but also a spotty wang. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, if you're a woman back then, better safe than sorry. Just avoid all baldies. I'm on the path to uh, being a 
syphilitic looking dude. <laughs> but I'm not there yet. Nope. It's going to be a couple more. I think I got a few more months in me. Come, Shane. Come to the syphilis side. I think I, I keep saying every year I'm like, I've only got a few more months. And it's it's definitely going. Yeah. And I like I got my hair really wet a while ago, and I could just like see through my scalp with a light above me. Or I could you see, see your my, brain. I could see my, no, I could see my entire scalp. Uh, I think you got other problems. If you're getting your head wet, you can see your brain. It's a, that's a worse STD. That's, mm. yeah. To recommend it, syphilis does have madness uh, towards the middle and end. So, you know, fun. It's not a selling point. <laughs> so bald guys, you'll be, I don't know, sad to hear, maybe happy to hear, mm. had an even tougher time getting laid in postiquity. Mm. 17th century hookup culture, rough for the Duncans of the world. Mm. So wigs, known as perukes, became all the rage. Mm. Perukes varied in style from tight, short curls to flowing, wavy locks that cascaded to the shoulders and beyond, elaborate hairdos rivaling any 80s glam band. Mm. The wigs were heavy, hot, and bug-infested. However, lice in your wig was preferable to lice in your actual hair, as a wig could be sent off to the wig shop for boiling. A little tougher to boil your actual, actual head. Yes. You know. We were just discussing your problem with the see-through skull. <laughs> Is that what happened? So obviously these are powdered wigs. Mm. Uh, peasant wigs would be powdered with flour many times. But royal wigs were anointed with scented wig powder and oils, which came with the added benefit of masking the smell of rotting syphilis sores and generally poor hygiene. Yes, this I know about. Ever seen those nice big spheres hanging around people's waists in old-timey pictures? Those were oranges stuck with cloves. Really? Yes, in order to block the scent. Pardon my crotch stench. <laughs> Smell this grapefruit with cloves in it instead. When a clovey grapefruit smells better than your crotch, you're not doing great. No, you're not killing it. The wig trend began with peasants, but truly caught on when it was adopted by the syphilis-infested nobility, royals like Louis XIV, many of whom would spend the equivalent of $10,000 for an extra awesome and elaborate hairpiece. Hmm. which directly led to the term bigwig. Ah, okay. Wigs were slightly less popular in America. Many of the paintings and portraits of white-haired Americans after the Revolutionary War depict men who were not actually wearing wigs, hair pieces having become less fashionable in America as revolutionaries attempted to distance themselves from the European nobility while still maintaining the tight-cropped, curly hairstyle of the era. Hmm. For instance, George Washington never wore a wig. That was his actual do? That was his real hair. And in fact, he was a ginger and anointed his hair with white powder to conform to the day's fashion and also to avoid judgment because even in postiquity, it was common knowledge that gingers don't have souls. <laughs> That's the dumbest of all bigotry, but fair enough. Yeah. Um, I, I like, so what? Was he the opposite of like a Pert Plus commercial or something? Like he just he waved his hair and it was a dust cloud came off his shoulders? I mean, if you ever got into a musket fight, you just bap his head and suddenly smokescreen, you're safe. So even though white hair is now a sign of frailty and advancing age, it was super chic in the days when we didn't fear and despise old people. And as a result, many of George Washington's immediate successors as president, including Madison and Adams and Jefferson, they all rocked a powdered wig. Hmm. Okay. But not Washington. No, no. He got their own natural with flour. Yeah. Yeah. Next fashion trend. Yes. To understand cod pieces, hmm. you first have to understand that they hail from an era without pants. Hmm. Not that pants didn't exist. Trousers have been around since postiquity, but the version of lower body coverings for European men available in the 1300s typically involved two separate leggings, like tights, one for each leg, and then a kind of a skirt at the top 
leaving the junk uh, free and vulnerable. Hmm. So the first cod pieces were made of cloth and were classic banana hammocks intended to cover and support the junk. Eventually, they morphed into large protuberances that mimicked a permanent erection and were proudly displayed in public as well as in portraits of the era. You know what that is? It's the first lifted truck. <laughs> yeah, it was overcompensating. Look at this amazing device inside my manly skirt. It is huge and obviously not in any way related to the size of my actual organ. Yes. Do you have a bigger cock shield than me? No? Then I judge the lesser man. Cod pieces became so large that they were utilized as pockets. <laughs> According to scholar Will Fisher, cod pieces provided, quote, convenient storage for one's hanky or a stray orange, in addition to bottles, napkins, pistols, hair, and even a looking glass. I'm sorry, back up. Hair? I don't know why you would want to store some extra hair next to your pubes, but, you know, it was a weird time. I got hung up on fucking a spare orange until you said hair. And then I was like, all right, you know what? I, I just explained about the oranges and cloves. I can get past that. Fucking hair? Maybe that's where you kept your merkin. Mm. Over time, cod pieces became increasingly ornate, festooned with jewels, tassels, and tinsel. It was all very festive. <laughs> Pimp my cod piece. <laughs> <laughs> And age was no barrier. Uh, boys as young as seven were rocking cod pieces in Renaissance Europe. No, no, Jesus God. Son, I've told you a thousand times. You remove your giant fake erection before hugging your sister. Large protruding cod pieces also became standard additions to suits of armor. Yep. You just imagine meeting a knight on the battlefield, and suddenly he's charging at you across a steamy, blood-soaked clearing, sporting a giant, gleaming battle axe, a massive metal boner. And a massive gleaming hard-on. Terrifying. <laughs> You're like, D dude, dude, do, do you want a minute? I can wait. You can take care of that. But that could backfire. Like, my instinct was to surrender to anyone who has a giant battle axe. Mm. But I'm worried you're going to fuck me. <laughs> yes. We're fighting to the death now. <laughs> like, I'm going to scratch and bite. Before, I was just like, all right, white flag. Yeah. I see that cock coming at me. I'm just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> And the other thing is, you, you got to wonder, how many knights died when their codpiece blocked some part of their swing? Yeah. Like, if you're swinging down at somebody, isn't your forearm arm piece going to, like, clang off your metal cock? Like, just yeah. clang, and you just couldn't complete your swing, and you died? Yeah, I feel like that's just another encumbrance. Yeah, another impediment. I don't, I don't want an erection going into bathroom. It's into bathroom. Going into, <laughs> definitely not a bathroom. Also. Yes, not a, not a time for an erection. <laughs> But what I mean to say, I think was, we know what you mean yeah, to say, yeah, Freud. <laughs> uh, what I meant to say was, I don't want an erection going into battle, real or metallic. Mm. Neither one has I, its place. I definitely, <laughs> I definitely don't want an erection going into a bathroom battle. You no, know, Jesus, that is a sword <laughs> fight I am not into, sir. You dare to hide in a stall? Come out here amongst the urinals, or I may have at thee. <laughs> Raise your urinal cake and charge if you be a man. <laughs> I can do this all night. <laughs> so the cod beast lives on in the form of the slightly less prominent modern jockstrap, a piece of sporting equipment designed to confine, support, and protect a man's twig and berries. Hmm. Jockstraps themselves became fashion staples of gay leather culture and then moved into the heavy metal music scene via artists like Rob Halford of Judas Priest, and eventually crossed over into mainstream rock fashion 
when Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses fame wore one for the bulk of a Guns N' Roses tour. Really? Mm-hmm. Which one? The one where he was wearing a jockstrap. I don't know. <laughs> Jockstraps and codpieces still very common in the uber-theatrical black metal scene. Mm. Odorous Ungerous of the band Guar wears a giant jockstrap slash codpiece that he refers to as Cthulhu's Cuttlefish. That's pretty funny, actually. It looks, it like, looks like the way you think it might look. Does he spell it cuttlefish or cuddlefish? Oh, that would like, be cute. Yeah. You look at it, no one's cuddling that. It's not cuddle appropriate. No? It's no. barbed. We don't king shame. So, you mentioned it before. We have to talk about foot binding. <laughs> the barbaric practice of foot binding persisted for over 1,000 years in China, most likely beginning with the Song Dynasty and only gradually phased out in the 1900s. Mm-hmm. If you want to be horrified, search for pictures of foot binding on Google. It is shocking. Yeah, and just utterly nauseating when they actually show old pictures of women who had bound feet. The feet of young girls were crushed, broken, and then bound so tightly that the toes curled underneath and embedded into the flesh of the sole of the foot. The goal of foot binding was for women to fit into lotus shoes, which is probably the nicest sounding name ever for a diabolical torture device. Yeah. The ideal length of a woman's foot during this period in China was considered to be 11 centimeters, or 4 inches. Yuck. Referred to as the golden lotus, thus the shoes. 4 inches. If you take a look at golden lotus shoes, they look like tiny little doll shoes. They're baby is, shoes. They're, they look like baby shoes. It is unthinkable that a standard-sized adult human could fit their feet into these things. Right. If a woman's foot was one inch larger, that was like somewhat acceptable. That was called the silver lotus. Anything beyond that, your feet were iron lotuses and you were just like not marriage material. Are you trying to tell me, sir, that your daughter walks around on anything but hooves? <laughs> I will never settle for a woman with normal human sized feet. I want it's golden hooves in my bed. Hideous. I want them mutilated and malformed the way God intended. That's why he made them the regular way, so that we could take matters into our own hands. It is rough. I mean, we can joke about it, but this is fucking horrific. Oh, no. Yeah. A 2015 Smithsonian Magazine article by Amanda Foreman explains the process in depth. And I'm just going to read this whole thing. Thanks. Quote, first, the young girl's feet were plunged into hot water and her toenails clipped short. Then the feet were massaged and oiled before all of the toes, except the big toes, were broken and bound flat against the sole, making a triangle shape. Next, her arch was strained as the foot was bent double. Finally, the feet were bound in place using a silk strip measuring 10 feet long and 2 inches wide. These wrappings were briefly removed every two days to prevent blood and pus from infecting the foot. Sometimes, excess flesh was cut away or encouraged to rot. The girls were forced to walk long distances in order to hasten the breaking of their arches. Over time, the wrappings became tighter and the shoes smaller as the heel and sole were crushed together. After two years, the process was complete, creating a deep cleft that could hold a coin in place. Once a foot had been crushed and bound, the shape could not be reversed without a woman undergoing the same pain all over again. Ugh. Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... We've been doing weird shit and continue to do weird shit to each other in the name of what one part or another part of a society thinks is beautiful. So I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, those savage, savage Chinamen. 
No, no like, yeah, we're not picking on China. And no. I'm also not going to, like, pull punches. Just because Europeans have done horrible shit doesn't make this less horrible. Like, this oh, no. is fucking terrible. No, it's horrifying. And it also began part of what became the opium trade. Because the only way to anesthetize these women was to get them hooked on opium. Because the only way you could move around. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're right. I mean, the absolutely. The extreme corsets of Victorian England where women were, quote, training their waists to be like so tiny that their spines became misaligned and their internal organs were reorganized. Like this type of extreme body modification in the name of fashion was not limited to China, of course. Right. As long as we maintain the fact that humans are awful everywhere at all times, I'm happy with saying, oh, yeah. yep, one more example of holy shit, why? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not the Chinese are awful. It's just like, look what humans do. Yeah. Foot binding was so widespread that by the time the 1800s rolled around, it's estimated that almost half of Chinese women had endured it to some degree. And among the wealthy and elite, that number climbed to around 100%. More money, more problems. I mean, at that time, okay. I can kind of go with you on that one. More money, horrible disfigurement. Yeah. It's not a thing we say anymore, and thank God. I mean, yeah, maybe. Mm. It'd be nice if more money, we shoot you into space. And you don't get to come back. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Over the years, there were numerous efforts in China to ban foot binding. Mm. The Qingqi Emperor of the mid-1600s in particular attempted to abolish the practice, but failed. Nice going, Imp. Good, good, good try. He was like, hey, uh, maybe we should stop torturing our women and young girls. And dudes were like, nah, kind of like this whole women can't run away thing. Not quite ready to give that up. Yeah, yeah. Way easier to catch when they can't actually run. Foot binding finally began to lose favor in the early 1900s. Though it had proved remarkably resilient, the last shoe factory producing Lotus shoes did not close until 1999. Fucking what? Yeah. Were they just producing them as, like, gag gifts? Or were they just putting them on kids? Like There were still women who had been subjected to, like, the extreme foot binding alive in 2007. Yeah, I remember that. I remember at least in my teens, um, pictures of, of people who were who's like old old Chinese women who would still had their feet bound. Yeah. Not on purpose, but just because it was the only way to like support the bone structure of what they had. They couldn't Oof. do the surgeries. Jesus. Next, fashion fad. I didn't even like to call it a fashion fad. That was like a surgical procedure. Next, real fashion fad. Yes. The Tudor Ruff of the Elizabethan era was a gigantic doily for your neck. Oh, that fucking thing. So funny. Okay. It is the human equivalent of the cone of shame, except Europeans wore it voluntarily and weren't ashamed at all. No. In fact, you were judged by the length of your cone of shame. Actually, the plastic cone that animals wear uh, to keep them from biting or licking themselves often called an Elizabethan collar. Really? Yeah. That's hilarious. Okay. Ruffs began as simple gatherings of fabric at the neck, like a ruffle, but like cod pieces and so many other boneheaded fashion ideas, influencers of the time insisted on taking a reasonable trend to the illogical extreme. Mm. As ruffs became more elaborate, starch was introduced to keep them erect and to ensure that the wearer looked as idiotic and bizarre as humanly possible. Yeah. I think the funniest example of this to me is when in the, remember the movie Baron Munchausen, we mentioned mm -hmm. it in another episode, when Robin Williams' character's head can be detached from his body and it sort of has that metal frill and yeah just it flying around that to me was like yeah okay that makes sense otherwise that frill makes no fucking yeah, it's sense it's like a flying saucer for a decapitated head yeah 
I love this quote from Wikipedia, quote, the impracticality of roughs led to them becoming a symbol of wealth and status. <laughs> of course it did. Such a telling statement. Yeah. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like if you're poor, you can't afford to waste money on impractical bullshit that has no utilitarian value. Right. You have to be wealthy and bored to want to seek out expensive ways to make your life more difficult in order to demonstrate that you have the resources to overcome that difficulty. That is sad and true. Oh, God. We are doomed. Like most ridiculous fashion trends, the size and impracticality of ruffs became more extreme as time passed. While a mid-1500s ruff might have involved some 10 yards of fabric, they would eventually become far more elaborate and heavy and massive. Later ruffs would be over a foot wide and supported by a wire frame. Eating while wearing one was quite an ordeal. I would have loved to have seen how that went down. Would you have? Would you? Like, can you imagine how much gravy and, like, drippings just sort of ended up in that white cotton or whatever the hell silk rough it was? Like everything had to be, like, popcorn style. Where you yeah. Just, like... Your hand-to-mouth coordination must have been a fucking amazing or you starved. I mean, if you were a person who could afford uh, to be ridiculous enough to wear one of those ruffs, you could just have people feed you. It's true. Or, you know, afford some metallurgist to make you really long forks. <laughs> That's great. I would love that. I want to see a dinner with just like three foot long forks and two foot long ruffs. I, I would just use it as like a lazy Susan. Yeah. Just like put all the food, put the food on the ruff <laughs> and then just spin the ruff when I want something else. And just bed your head down. Hamf, hamf. Yeah. Nice. That actually seems very uh, practical to me. Yeah, utilitarian as hell now that I think about it. Yeah. So ruffs were in decline by the early 1600s, though to this day they remain part of the official uniform of the clergy in Denmark and Greenland. The modern ruffs are a bit more modest, maybe six inches wide and way thinner than back in their heyday. But uh, don't worry, they still look plenty goddamn stupid. Truly. And I think anyone who's that religious should have to wear something that identifiably idiotic. Wear your collar of shame. Yeah. Pedophilic moron you. <laughs> oh, that's mean. Yes, and I am. So we can move on. <laughs> Next fashion trend. Yeah. The shoes that we discussed earlier in this episode were depressing, to say the least. Mm. So let's explore a more lighthearted take on footwear fashion faux pas. Oh, yes? So-called Krakows, named after their supposed origin in the city of Krakow, Poland, were bizarre pointed shoes that looked a lot like something you might see on a Christmas elf. Ah, uh, do we mean Aladdin shoes? Kind of, but like extreme. Like, hmm. I had no idea that these things were real, but in the late Middle Ages, a short-lived queen of England, known as Anne of Bohemia, reportedly introduced the fashion from her native Prague in modern-day Czech Republic, which is not the same as modern-day Krakow, Poland, but whatever, geography is hard. <laughs> and as usual, the sight of rich people doing something stupid resulted in stupidity going viral. Mm. This is the problem with influencers. Yes, mimetic stupidity. It's a thing. I typically hate the term sheeple, mm. but I am really tempted to use it when it comes to fashion. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on this one. So Krakow shoes were typically just leather slippers with a long protuberance, as if someone's middle toe extended up to six inches or so from the foot. The point could be slightly curled at the end, like the classic elf shoe, or weirdly straight and spiky. The protuberances were known as poulains and were typically stuffed with a spongy substance like moss or horsehair. However, knights occasionally wore them with their suits of armor, in which case they could be spiked metal, which was useful for kicking fools <laughs> while on horseback, but a massive impediment if the fight went to the ground. I've seen these, and I've heard tell that in order to run or like get involved in actual battle, they would have to swing their sword down and cut off the toes to, to enter battle. That was the thing that happened, yeah. 
I bet they did that less with the cod pieces. Mm, yes. <laughs> I have to go into battle. Shang. Also a protuberance that could get in the way, mm. but I feel like they would have been more reluctant to actually, yeah. Self-circumcise? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're correct. Knights who had dismounted would often cut off their poulains before engaging in combat. Later versions were detachable. They were affixed to the sabatons or armored shoes via a hinge. Hmm. One more reason why you'd have to invent, like, knightly courtesy. Like, this guy gallops up to you in full plate mail, gets off his horse awkwardly. It's like, one moment, sir. I shall fight you in a moment. Please, excuse me, please refrain from swinging that axe at my head until I have removed my poulains from my sabatons. Bugger off, mate. So that's it. That's all I've got for this round of wacky fashion. Ended on poulains, as so many men's scrotums did. We'll definitely do a Mark II of this one. There's a lot of crazy fashion, and we could do more kind of modernish ones. Yeah. Uh, and some that go even farther back. But that was actually really interesting to me. Those are the ones that kind of jumped out at me, and I enjoyed looking into them. All right. So, as per usual, Midnight Masses, head to the Discord, head to the Instagram, go places, see things, interact with Shane, tell us our next episode. Please, God, make it not have anything to do with foot binding it that really stuck with me because now all the pictures from my middle school are coming back to me and as usual rate rep review you know what to do rate rep review go leave a review where fine podcasts are sold and as usual and as always knowledge is power sleep is overrated